2: not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
3: PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since
2: 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank a National Association member FDIC.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year
2: From HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And we wanted to celebrate International Children's Day. That is June 1st. And to do that, to celebrate children, we wanted to take a look at imagination. And I realize that seems like a big, nebulous topic. And you're so right. It is. If you try to research imagination hypothetically, if you're trying to research it for anything like a podcast, there is a lot of stuff out there. Something that I was really hoping to find in our research was why, when you're a kid, does everything seem so amazing, like so big and awesome, like awesome in the Mount Everest sense of the word awesome, not just like awesome. Like, why does everything seem so full of life, so full of color? And around the time you hit puberty, you're like, everything is awful.
4: Yeah, it's it's not just hormones. Uh, but before we get into the psychology and the science of children's imagination, because there really is a lot of fascinating stuff to talk about. I got to tell you, Caroline, my favorite part of all of this research was the immediate chain of emails that you and I started bouncing off each other as <laughs> soon as we you just mentioned imagination. And it was late in the afternoon, so I think we, we were probably both a little bit brain fried. And we just got swept away into this revelry of, our child our own childhood imaginations. For me, it, it instantly reminded me of being in this antique wardrobe that my parents had in our basement when I was a kid. And I was a huge fan of the Chronicles of Narnia. And Caroline, I can't tell you how many times I stood in that wardrobe just waiting to see if I was gonna be able to cross through the other side. Mm-hmm. Like I knew, part of me knew it was really foolish. Part of me knew it was never going to happen, but there was still enough of me that thought, you know what? It could. Maybe it could.
1: Yeah. I, um, I mean, there, there are so many examples of me just, you know, being a kid, but I, I was a big Barbie player. I feel like I've talked about this before, but I was hugely into creating these worlds and adventures for my Barbie dolls. And it was so real, and they were they were real, and they were having these relationships and doing these things. And Skipper was going to a party, um, and and Kira was swimming in the pool. That's really my sink. Um, Kira had a great bathing suit, by the way. I'm just like remembering all these dolls that I had that I loved. But um, I, I distinctly remember that that utter like joy and that super deep mental involvement in imagining that. Those relationships, I just remember that just completely petering out as puberty approached and being like, well, this is really, this is, what am I, what am I doing? I could go like play outside or read a book or something.
4: Yeah, that sensation of getting completely lost in an imaginary world when you're a child where hours are just, I mean, they just evaporate Mm -hmm. because you're so involved in creating, not only just building up this world, but then living in it. I also remember there would be days when I would wake up excited because I knew I had a lot of playtime that day. And I had already kind of built up maybe a world in, in my playroom. And I was gonna, just going to go straight there. I knew I was going to have a great time because no <laughs> one could stop me. Literally, no one could stop me except for whatever villains that I would make up.
1: Yeah. And I would create these own little worlds for myself separate from the Barbies. You know, I would play like Chocolate Factory in the backyard, which was really just making mud pies in my sandbox toys. And uh, we had a room over the garage that was unfinished. And my parents just stored a lot of junk up there. A lot of my brother's junk from college. And so I would go up there and, like, turn it into an apartment. That you sounds know?
4: so much fun.
1: And I would, like, stack things. And my brother had this, like, giant old 80s boom box. And I would, like, turn it on and be rocking out up there. And I'd sweep and I'd draw with chalk on the plywood. And I was like, this is my apartment. I'm an independent woman.
4: Yeah, I had a fort that I built with my sister yeah. that I very much enjoyed tidying up, which I think was a, a precursor to my <laughs> uh, dishwasher um uh, OCD-ness right. as an adult. So while I would honestly love to spend the next half hour just telling you everything that I pretended to be as a kid, let's talk about the origins of... Investigation into childhood imagination. Who first started thinking, hey, kids, ki- yeah, kids are, have those kooky brains. Right.
1: Well, you you have to think about it first in the context of when did childhood emerge, because it's not like childhood was always protected and valued as a sacred time of learning and growth. No. Children and their little fingers were sent to the factories to, like, scoop things out of looms and whatever – you know, child labor, et cetera, et cetera, with the Industrial Revolution. But then you do start to have people who are like, no, if we want them to be amazing members of society when they grow up, they deserve to to have this playtime, to have this innocence where they can learn and be safe. I just, like, condense so much history in about two sentences. But as with a lot of things in psychology – A lot of this does go back to
4: Freud. Oh, Freud. Oh,
1: Freud. What did did he say? Sometimes a pipe is just a pipe, okay? Yes,
4: this is true. But anyway. My fort was just a fort. It
1: was just a fort. That boombox was... Anyway. Anyway, Freud talks about how we all, all of us, not just children, have two different modes of thinking. But what's interesting is that he called our primary processes, that was our dream life, and the secondary processes were our waking thought. You would almost think it would be the other way around. And he recognized that children did know the difference between reality and fantasy. It's not that, for instance, I literally thought that my, you know, attic play place was my own apartment. I yeah, mean, you I didn't try to sleep there. I didn't try to eat the chocolate pie, which was really mud because you mud. But um he says that they do know the difference, but that they absolutely need play. And so Freud talks about how, look, kids take their play very seriously. It's not something that they consider to be frivolous. They It's like their livelihood. Like parents go to work, kids go play. And he talks about how they expend large amounts of emotion on it. And he says the opposite of play is not what is serious, but what is real. So he goes on to say... He likes to link his imagined objects and situations to the tangible and visible things of the real world. So obviously, in other words, you have to know a thing or two about what's around you and how things work and how people relate to each other to even begin to imagine and fantasize about other possibilities.
4: Now, the other person who comes up in this conversation alongside Freud is psychologist Jean Piaget, who developed another sort of school of thought around children's imaginations, and this was in the 1920s and 30s. And Piaget argued that something called magical thinking dominated children's imaginations. Essentially, it was a confusion around cause-effect relationships. So Piaget argued that children believe their thoughts or actions can alter reality, that one object can influence another when there's really no logical causal relationship present, which makes sense because... Children simply don't know these logical causal relationships. And so they're sort of using fantasy and imagination to help explain the world around them. They just have the they, they just don't have the logic down yet. Right. And one example given was like, obviously, this
1: wouldn't have been in Piaget's time. But if a child walks by a stoplight and the stoplight suddenly turns green, they think, oh, well, because I walked by it, it turned green. I employ magical thinking as a grown up when I yell at stoplights like, turn Green, won't you already? And then it does. And I'm like, see? See?
4: You're, I get, I bet you guys are glad I'm at this stoplight. But imagination though is more than fantasy as more recent research has taught us. It actually hones our childhood understandings of reality because unlike the, a, a common line of thinking that, well, imagination is just escapism. It's just children trying to you know, escape into other worlds, whereas really it's sort of us sorting out this insane new space around us. So um, what's what's also interesting in this earlier history of the study of childhood imagination is that in addition to Freud and Piaget in the 1920s, we also have a pair of lady psychologists who are influential as well in developing our modern ideas about the function of imagination, Right. Naomi Norsworthy and Mary
1: Theodora Whitley wrote The Psychology of Childhood, wherein they describe in in very big general terms, but also very specific. It's, it's a gorgeously written thing from the 20s anyway, where they describe children's imaginations. And they wrote that from the ages of four to eight, stories and fairy tales were critical, that they allowed kids' imaginations a workout and that they absolutely filled a need. They wrote the lack of knowledge of physical laws and the ways of the world and the tendency towards animism make the material offered by the myth and fairy tale not only acceptable but necessary for a full growth. And so that's like what we've been saying, that this imagination, all this fantasy, all this imagining our Barbies talking to each other is totally critical in kids Basically, accidentally performing the scientific method, putting a hypothesis or a theory out there about how things should work after viewing their parents doing things or their siblings doing things or people at the grocery store acting a certain way, they sort of put it all into practice during their playtime and using their imagination.
4: Well, and when you think about it, at its very basic level, science and imagination have a lot in common because science is all about coming up with hypotheses and you know, thinking about what we don't already know as fact and then experimenting and experimenting until you continue to fail or eventually succeed. It takes a lot of imagination to be a scientist. And imagination, as I'm sure we're all very well aware, starts so early. Uh, kids begin pretend play before they turn three. And the time that we spend pretending peaks during the preschool years and then decreases a little bit between five and eight years old. Right. And during the same time, our belief in our
1: imaginary friends, in Santa and other fantasy figures, peaks as well. So it's not that you're not playing. Obviously nine-year-olds still play. It's that, it's that whole, uh, pretend play, that imaginary friend type of thing starts to decrease. Um in that same period, kids strongly believe in wishing from three to six. This would, I think, tie into that whole magical thinking thing. Um, But as they hit that six-year-old mark, that belief starts to diminish. They tend, though, from then on to see it as something that's a combination, adorably, of magic and mental ability and skill. So it's like, Yes. Okay. I get that wishing isn't a thing that makes things appear in front of me. Like I can't wish for a sandwich and it suddenly appears in front of me, God forbid. But maybe if I'm like really good at it and I wish really hard and the universe or God or whoever, like really hears me, then it can happen.
4: I feel like I still think
1: like that sometimes. I know. I'm like, maybe if I just tell them how much I want a sandwich delivered, it'll It'll happen.
4: It does feel like magic. Side note, when I walk into the break room, and there's a platter of surprise sandwiches or cupcakes.
1: I know. I love when meetings get out. Yeah. And <laughs> the food from meetings is, is presented to the rest of the people. So, you know, all this stuff about treating imagination as like kids using the scientific method is more of a recent development. Um, researchers and child development experts are just starting to realize how much of a role it plays in understanding reality. And there was an article about this in the Wall Street Journal back in 2009- That talks about how imagination is necessary for learning about people and events we don't directly experience. Think about history class. You weren't around, or I don't think you were, in ancient Rome. How are you ever supposed to figure out what that was like? You take what you know, what your teacher tells you, what your parents tell you, and you imagine it. And so for young kids, this allows them to think about the future, like what they want to be when they grow up. And Paul Harris, who's a development psychologist and a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, said the imagination is absolutely vital for contemplating reality, not just for those things We take to
4: be mere fantasy. And speaking of mere fantasy, let's talk for a minute about imaginary friends, because as an example of how fantasy play helps kids, research suggests that preschool kids with imaginary friends tend to be more creative, have greater social understanding and are better at taking the perspective of others. Mm -hmm. In other words, creating this. Fake, invisible friend develops empathy within kids. Yeah, you you sort of work out your social
1: problems with this friend that you can blame everything on.
4: Well, and there's more research, too, that's found that the more a kid pretends and and engages in fantasy play, the better their verbal skills are, too. Right, yeah, and it's the same thing, because we did talk about this in our episode
1: on Imaginary Friends, and the same thing is true for, like, oh, I don't know, people who also play with dolls? So because you're creating these worlds in your head, you're flexing your creativity muscle, but you're also using your language skills. And so as you learn more words and more vocab, you're applying them to your pretend games.
4: Yeah. And there was one psychologist who was talking about how the assumption is that Sesame Street, for instance, is fantastic at developing kids verbal capabilities because it always focuses on specific words, specific letters and sort of hammering home, through repetition, these very basic building blocks of speech. But in fact, what's even better than Sesame Street is playing with Big Bird on your own. Mm-hmm. Or, or it doesn't have to be Big Bird. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Um, and in addition to things like the verbal skills, when you encourage imagination in kids, again, research goes on to find that it helps them develop those social skills, boost their self-confidence, boost intellectual growth. It's the beginning, really, of abstract thought. And it also, this was one that really jumped out to me, it helps kids sort of manage their fears.
1: Yeah, and um, if we're talking, you know, beyond, if we're going beyond imaginary friends and just talking about fantasy and pretend play in general, a lot of the examples are heights, for instance. If you had a treehouse and you were allowed to play in this big treehouse, and this is something we'll talk about a little bit later if we're talking about, you know, our overprotective parents affecting imagination – But kids who got to play up high in tree houses or whatever, when they grow up, it's sort of like they're desensitized to it. And so their fear of heights is a lot less. Or, you know, if you're like me and your dad built you like a treehouse play fort thing that also included swings, you would have worked out your fear of falling off those swings by falling off the swings and landing in the gravel. And being like, man, I'm never doing
4: that again. See, I'm the opposite. (laughs) I have a pretty strong fear of heights Mm -hmm. and just in general, a fear of hurting myself. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have a treehouse growing up. We had a climbing tree, but it had this one. it, It went into a V. It was like a Y shaped tree. And so there was we had this little plank of wood in the middle of the Y and but I was always so scared to even climb up there. And I don't know if it was because my mom always told me to be careful. You don't want to hurt yourself. I don't know if I got too many of those kinds of messages. Mm-hmm. Or maybe maybe I'm just a fraidy cat. Well, I don't know. let's be clear.
1: My treehouse was way different from the neighbor boy's treehouse, which was like a death trap. Because mine wasn't literally a treehouse. It was like this huge structure that my dad built that was like, a fort on top and a sandbox sandbox on the bottom and these like really scary I don't know what kind of boards they were but they were the square cube kind of long board. But anyway, basically my leg could go through it and I could like slice the entire front of my shin off, but at least I had steps. My neighbor's treehouse was literally a treehouse where you had to like climb part of a tree and then climb these rickety boards that they just nailed into the trunk and I ended up there one day and I was stuck. Because I was terrified to come down. I was like, I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going to hurt myself. So are you
4: scared of heights now?
1: Middling, middle-ish kind probably, of
4: probably less than I am.
1: Like I'm not, I can go up high and be fine, but I'm more afraid of falling to
4: my death.
5: Yeah. <laughs>
4: than aren't, actually being up high. We all. Yeah. But speaking of kids coping with stress, uh, as we mentioned earlier, there used to be there, there's a common line of thought that, oh, well, imagination is just children's escapism from terrible surroundings. But it's not necessarily a coping mechanism for kids.
1: Yeah. Uh, psychology professor Allison Gopnik, um, who focuses on children's development, wrote in Slate in 2005, that happy, healthy children are, if anything, more likely to be immersed in a world of fantastic daydreams, public or private, than unhappy or troubled children, which goes against the previous traditional line of thinking that uh, fantasy and imagination are therapeutic and that it's used as an escape to work out their problems.
4: And it's not necessarily that they are electing fantasy over reality. What we, we tend to forget as adults, even though we were once kids, is that kids can distinguish usually between real and pretend. They're essentially just little sponges learning about life. I mean, they're they're inherently designed to learn. And so play and fantasy, again, is part of this protected period of childhood that allows kids to learn vital survival skills in a safer environment. And so you often have these comparisons of childhood imagination and fantasy play with dog and wolf pups play fighting, which is the cutest analogy possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I grew up with, with two little puppy sisters uh, who would play fight all the time. And, and that's common in, in animals. You You play fight and you learn how to chase and you learn how to go after food and foes so that when you're actually a big grown-up dog or wolf or whatever and you're out in the wild... Um, that you know how to act and behave. And it's not really that different among human children. And I just wonder, like, side note, I just wonder if it is that whole, like, sponge-like thing about kids and their brains being designed to learn, really taking shape during this age. I wonder if that's why everything seems so awesome. Probably. I mean, it's so new. It's just like... Running through a sprinkler seems magical, or you know what I'm, you know. So, I just wonder if it's your brain being in its early stages of growth and spongy and whatever. But anyway, it's that whole thing that these kids kids are little theorists, they're learning how to explain the world around us and. They're not constrained by the whole uh, little issue of possibility, what's possible and what's probable, like adults are. Like, I know what's possible and what's not, so my imagination maybe doesn't roam as far as a child's who doesn't have any of those constraints.
4: Well, one thing I wanted to look at, too, was whether or not there are gender differences in this kind, uh, in our sponge brains and how we use them to pretend. And uh, it, it's... Actually, not that revelatory because essentially boys and girls are equally likely to engage in this quote unquote fantasy play, as academics call it. But there are some gender differences do, or socialized gender differences, do emerge. There was one study called The Reality of Pretend Play Ethnic, Socioeconomic, and Gender Variations in Young Children's Involvement. And it found Really no differences based on ethnicity or socioeconomic levels. But there were a couple of gender variations that jumped out, which were that girls tend to engage in more gender stereotypical activities and boys tend to go for more occupation related pretend. So in other words, girls like to play mother bride going grocery shopping, whereas boys are likelier. To play, say, fireman or, uh, tax auditor. Just kidding. <laughs> no one plays tax auditor. No offense to the tax auditors listening. I, I played
1: teacher. That was my big Ooh, thing. Oh, I did, I
4: did a little bit of teacher. I definitely did some nurse mm-hmm. and some mom and also a glamorous woman about to go on a date. <laughs> that was when I started getting a little bit older. <laughs>
1: did you see your older sisters? Like,
4: no, honestly, that I can tell you 100 percent was from watching uh AMC when it was in its pre-Mad Men and Walking Dead days. And it was all classic movies mm-hmm. with like Marilyn Monroe, et cetera, mm-hmm. getting dressed up to go out on the town. And the, well, the, those they- those were the those were the starlets that I looked up to were the women who went to like the Cabana Club in a gown on a Friday night to meet a doctor. So it's funny that I do what I do now. <laughs> well, I mean, podcasting is glamorous. It is glamorous, especially a feminist podcast. <laughs> um, oh, but one quick, though, side note in terms of imaginary friends and gender differences. Uh, Marjorie Taylor, who is a psychology professor at University of Oregon, found that girls are likelier to create imaginary companions. But boys are likelier to simply pretend to be characters. So in other words, the, the example that she gives is that a boy will just pretend that he's Batman, whereas a girl would pretend that Batman is her friend. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and they think that it ties into how girls also engage in socialized play a little bit younger ages than boys. We want to play with somebody, whereas mm-hmm. boys tend to engage in solitary play for a little bit longer than girls do. So just a couple of gendered insights to toss into this imagination talk.
1: Well, we have to take a quick break, but after we come back, I want to talk a little bit about how kids' imaginations are different from adults. So we'll be right back.
0: Can I rant for a sec? Please.
5: So we spent a lot of time
4: talking about kids and kids' fantasy play and some gender differences. But how do kids' imaginations differ from adults? Because even though perhaps the brilliance and shimmer of our childhood imagination fades with time Mm -hmm. and puberty, we still engage in magical thinking as adults.
1: Yeah, going back to Naomi Norsworthy and Mary Whitley back in the 1920s, They wrote early on that kids' imaginations do differ in the kind, number, and vividness of images. And so this is really the only mention in all of our research I came across that really specified the vividness of imagination and the vividness of how the world appears around them. And they write that kids' imagery is so intense that sometimes they can't tell the difference between imagination and memory, which, of course, made me pause and I was like... How would I know? Because I have these imaginary things, but I like I don't remember if I I don't I just don't know. How do you know? I don't know. But anyway, they, they write that kids lack the definite criteria by which to judge either the actuality of occurrences or the possibility of their fancies and that kids start to lose their more fanciful imagery around the ages of 10 to 13 when it becomes more
4: practical, more like adults. And that right there is probably the primary difference between adult imagination versus childhood imagination is that perhaps it loses the vividness because we have the logic. We understand, hopefully, how the world works in a more fundamental and basic level.
1: Yeah. And, and maybe there's no need in our brains driving us anymore to pick up those Barbie dolls and imagine that they are, in fact, in
4: Malibu. With, with palm trees all around them in their, in their pink jeep. Instead, we just daydream that we ourselves are in Malibu. Yeah. We sort of transfer it onto, uh, off of our dolls and onto our own selves while we're sitting in our cubicles,
1: (laughs) imagining being on the beach all the time. Um, but one major name in child psychology, especially in terms of imagination, is Jacqueline Woolley. She's a professor at UT Austin. And she has done a lot of studies in recent years on kids' imaginations and on their fantasy play and on their various beliefs in magical characters. And one study that I thought was so interesting was talking to kids about Santa, the Tooth Fairy, and the Garbage Man. Basically, to illustrate, they were trying to figure out at what point, because you don't really see the Garbage Man. John Garbage Man? John Garbage Man. You don't see him necessarily ride up to your house and take the garbage away. It's just gone the garbage is just gone same with santa you don't see him but you wake up on christmas morning and you have presents and the cookies are gone there's evidence evidence is the key in children as willie says believing in these fantasy characters because like i for instance oh my god did i believe in the easter bunny so hard Because so like I was getting to an age where I was starting to question things and I was like, does the Easter bunny really exist? And we went to church on Easter morning and like none of the chocolate was out none of the eggs had been put out. And when we came back from church, Jesus had left it. (laughs) All the candy was out and I was like, you guys, the Easter bunny is real. Here's all this evidence. Which is adorable when I think about my younger self, but,
4: but how did it get there, Caroline? I, you
1: know, I still don't know. And I bet, I bet you a million dollars of someone else's money that if I asked my parents, they'd be like, I don't remember. I bet it was John Garbageman. It was, it was, it was the Garbageman. Um, and so she talks about how. It's, it's seven, age seven is around the age where kids stop being quite as easily misled by adults' persuasive words. So it's your dad convincing you that there's Santa or your mom convincing you that there's the Easter Bunny and leaving that evidence. Cause even the tooth fairy leaves money. Um, but there is a division too, like a subdivision where they're more likely to believe in Santa because there's proof versus dragons or fairies where kids kind of grasp that those are fantasy figures that they get to daydream about, but that they won't necessarily meet.
4: Well, and some other research that Woolley and her students have done also found that five-year-olds in particular don't really understand the difference between what makes something impossible versus improbable. So they told a little girl that once upon a time, there was another girl, and she jumped up into the sky, and she never came back. And they asked whether or not that was possible and she said no that's completely impossible because why would anyone want to jump into the sky and never see the clouds again like that was the reason why right because it would be foolish to ever (laughs) not want to see the clouds right how foolish exactly and i I thought that was adorable too yeah yeah
1: (laughs) because because obviously that's the only reason um but you know there's also links uh of researchers looking at imagination and then things like autism and also anxiety Because while kids with autism don't necessarily play with toys or with people like their typically developing peers do, that doesn't mean they lack imagination. Researchers looking at Asperger's in particular found that kids with Asperger's still have a lot of creativity. It's just more reality-based. It's not necessarily imaginative, imaginative creativity. They gave them, uh, this was a study in the Journal of Autism and Development Disorders from 1999, but they basically presented all these kids with foam shapes and the neurotypical kids were able to come up with all like sorts of things that this could be. Whereas the children with Asperger's, it was more cut and dry. They didn't come up with quite as many examples as the typically developing kids did.
4: Yeah, but it is a bit of a myth that autistic kids have no imagination. Um, and that kind of started up in 1979 when autism researchers Lorna Wing and Judith Gould included lack of imagination in early autism criteria. But then in a 2010 interview with Lorna Wing, she clarified that it's more a deficit of social imagination. In other words, having a hard time imagining other people's perspectives and feelings, those kinds of things that kids develop via imaginary friends. A lot of times, for instance, they have a hard time with that and the empathy, the imagination required for empathy rather than just the imagination we might think of in a more basic sense of playtime, drawing, imagining other worlds, etc. Mm-hmm. And as far as
1: the anxiety thing goes, um it's interesting the links that have been drawn between kids with anxiety and kids who have super active imaginations. Um, Robin Alter is a psychologist who focuses a lot on this. She wrote the book Anxiety and the Gift of Imagination, but she talks about how she was seeing this girl in her office who was having stomach aches. Her parents didn't know what was wrong. The girl was super anxious. And as they were talking, it came out that she was an artist and she loved to paint and draw and put everything in these bright colors. And Alter asked her, like, do you think there's a link? Between your feelings, how you're anxious all the time, and your imagination, all of these great vivid images you see all the time. And the, both of them were like, huh, did we just have an epiphany together? Because Alter has drawn this link between people or children with super active imaginations where they just feel that they are in this scenario, they're in this situation, and it just starts to feel so real and so
4: overwhelming. Well, and that sounds a lot like the anxiety spiral that can happen where you start imagining all of these events that have not occurred yet. Mm -hmm. You are engaging in some terrifying fantasy play when anxiety can, you know, really clamp down. Like going to WebMD. Yes, Caroline, like going to the WebMD symptom checker
1: it's a terrible spot. That's all I could think reading about imagination and anxiety. I was like, Oh my God, I just imagine all of this terrible stuff happening to me. Cause then I, I'm like, Oh look, I have a new mole. Oh my God, it's cancer. You know? So I just, it's always cancer. But, um, one thing that we, we hinted at, at the beginning of the podcast was the idea of overprotective or helicopter parents, limiting kids' imagination and their capacity for developing more fantasy play, whether that is, in fact, something that's going on.
4: Yeah, because we know more than we ever did before about childhood development and what is good for kids. On top of that, we have a lot of technology, the reign of television in the home, and also, yes, this helicopter parenting where kids today are often kept very busy and very safe. With very good intention mm-hmm. from these helicopter parents, because they only want their precious angels to grow up and become Harvard superstars and and not, you know, break bones and whatnot. But that might not be leaving so much time for imagination like it used to,
1: right. There was a report from the American Academy of Pediatrics in two thousand and seven showing that children were playing less. And so, you know, the internet erupted. With so many articles and different studies looking at, like, structured play versus imaginative play. So, you know, putting your kid in all those ballet classes, you know, soccer games, like, all of these different, you know, math bowl, whatever they participated in, that was good. And it was helping them socialize and make friends. But it wasn't necessarily giving them enough time to have that independent, unstructured
4: creativity that comes with just playing by yourself. Nonetheless... A study in 2012 looking at this question of whether or not we are essentially tamping down too much on kids' imaginations today. There was a 2012 study published in the Creativity Research Journal, and it was led by Case Western Reserve University psychologists. And it was a meta-analysis of 14 play studies from 1985 to 2008. And they really didn't find any red flags at all. They found that kids are still very comfortable Playing and engaging in imagination. And they also found that kids today expressed less negative feelings in play. However, past studies have linked negative feelings during play with creativity. Again, is it that anxiety link? I don't know if it's,
1: well, I don't know if it's that or if it's that play helps you work things out. Yeah. Like you get so angry at Ken. For forgetting Barbie's birthday party. And then so you work out those, I don't know. Or you
4: fall down.
1: Or you fall down. You skin your knee. And you're like, man, I'm angry. Because, you know, when I did fall off the swing that time, I had a pudding pop in my hand. Like, imagine little Caroline swinging on a swing with a pudding pop in her hand. And when I flew off the swing, I looked up and my pudding pop had flown all the way across the playground and hit the side of the house and was just sliding down the house. That's a negative feeling. I'm like, my pudding pop, no! But these... Case Western researchers found that kids' capacity to express a wide range of positive emotions, to tell stories, and to organize their thoughts stayed consistent over this whole time period. They did stress, however, despite all the positives they found, how important it is to make sure that you do give kids time for play, since it helps with all of those things, the emotional things, the cognitive stuff that we talked about earlier.
4: Well, and this ties into all the conversation around whether or not TV time or video game time is bad for kids' imaginations if you plop a kid down in front of a television, whether that is just sapping all of those potentially positive benefits of turning off the TV mm-hmm. and sending the kid outside to build a fort or whatever it might be. Right, because
1: then, as one person put it, I can't remember what article it was, but as one person put it, when you plop your kid down and let the TV be the babysitter, they can't be the, the hero of their own story. They're enveloped in someone else's story and you know while watching peanuts when i was growing up was like my favorite thing you know i by watching that all the time i wasn't doing something else like playing with barbies or playing outside in the treehouse.
4: yeah and i've i've noticed differences anecdotally speaking of kids that i know watch a lot of television versus kids that don't watch as much and when you talk to a kid who watches a lot of television a lot of what you hear from them is stuff that they watch on television. The jokes that they have are jokes that they saw on, say, the Disney Channel. Compared to whatever kind of story they might have been writing or whatever adventure they might have been off on on their own.
1: I will say though that like the physical gags that were in all of the uh, Warner Brothers cartoons deeply influenced my comedy. Oh yeah, comedy.
4: I still I still definitely watch TV. As a kid too, there's nothing, I don't think there have been any studies saying that TV absolutely, you know, across the board is bad for kids. It's more just make sure parents that there's some free time left in there. Right. To, to foster that creativity. But even when you get out onto say the playground, you've left, there's no, not a TV in sight. You're taking your kid to the park. You go to the playground and one, big difference, I think, in our generation versus kids today is that the playgrounds that we played on when we were tykes were far more dangerous. So much rust. Than the one. So much rust. uh, Far more dangerous than the ones today. And there's this idea, too, that that kind of preoccupation with a kid's safety also has an impact on imaginative play. Right. Hannah Rosen wrote about
1: this uh, back in way back in March of this year for The Atlantic, uh, talking about how, you know, parents are spending a lot more time statistically speaking with their kids than they did back in the 70s. But the 70s is also when you see this rise in lawsuits from parents whose kids hurt themselves badly or who even died in playground accidents. And there was even a report from the government around this time that talked about thousands, tens of thousands of kids going to the emergency room every year because of playground accidents. And so you have this general push by advocates, child safety advocates, which, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being an advocate for child safety. Let great me just say cause. that. Yeah. It's a great cause. <laughs> great cause. Good job, guys. But there was this huge push for playground ga- playground regulations. Okay, That sounds good, right? However, one of those guys who was one of the original advocates behind this push for, you know, like the rubbery floor on the playgrounds, making them all plastic and lower and don't get your head caught in the bars and stuff, which I just thought that was a rite of passage to get your head stuck in the bars on the slide. But whatever. I eventually got it out. But so one of one of these original advocates says, hey, guys, um, We might have actually gone too far now by expecting our children to be protected from every single risk and assuming that our kids are just fragile or dumb.
4: And ironically, the number of playground related emergency room visits has actually gone up since 1980, although there are 10 fewer fatal injuries per year. But one of the reasons, too, that kids might be going to the hospital even more despite these safer playgrounds is that. They're so soft and safe that kids are a little bit more reckless,
1: right? So, um, the the place where we go up north in Michigan every summer, our playground that we had up there was awesome it was so awesome but the slide was like to to me as a kid it was like this huge towering thing that was all like rusty and metal and it would get so hot in the summer sun and the ground was just like maybe a thin layer of wood chips like not even it was mostly gravel so like you knew you had to take care of yourself so as not to fall and really really hurt yourself so you were more careful when you did fling yourself around on that giant metal slide contraption and so what that early childhood education professor ellen sandsetter was pointing out was that we we almost need to encourage kids to participate in not reckless play but but more imaginative playground activities that aren't necessarily super super safe because kids have to learn how to keep themselves safe or super super supervised
4: yeah you know, I mean, kids are pretty much always being watched right now. It's always expected that an adult will be around. And this also reminded me, um, okay. So one of the things that Hannah Rosen does in this Atlantic piece is travel to Wales where there is this free for all uh, calling it a playground is uh, a misnomer almost. It's a, it's a space for children outside that essentially looks like a junkyard and kids go there no adults in sight and it's just old mattresses and there are hammers and there's a river and kids also set fires all the time. They've set barrel fires like little hobos running around. <laughs> and that reminded me of researching for a Stuff Mom Never Told You video not too long ago about fire play in children mm-hmm. because in the United States, a majority of of the times that the fire department is called or the houses burned down is because kids set a fire. Yeah. And an evolutionary psychologist says that the kids are naturally inclined to fire play. And in more developing nations where they might not have things like uh, electricity or central heat, kids are taught to use fire from a very early age. And mm-hmm. a child as young as like five years old can responsibly learn to set a fire but because kids are so you know we're so fire phobic in the u.s and so scared of kids being around fire that our innate fire fascination is just drawn out because it's this you know survival skill Mm -hmm. that uh you know humans you would think are evolved to have and so we just keep playing with fire at an older and older age and so you have all of these 12 year olds running around burning fires where yeah, they shouldn't be.
1: Right, and Rosen also talks about this, and maybe Sansetter does too, about the fact that when you release these kids to be kids and to play in these unconventional play spaces and to explore and to splash through creeks and whatnot, their um, naughtiness level basically plummets mm-hmm. because they're able to just release that that kidness. They're they're using their imaginations. They're funneling all of their energy into something mentally productive for them. Whereas if you're keeping them safe, if you're keeping them on all of these non-stimulating plastic playgrounds, they've got to get that like kidness out somehow. And a lot of times it turns into bullying. It turns into setting fires. It turns into stealing the neighbor kid's bike. Very unproductive things.
4: Yeah. So it's kind of funny to see how The more we learn about childhood development, the more we are almost clamping down in a negative way. So I wonder though if we're gonna get to this point, I feel like we are getting to a tipping point where the helicopter parents are starting to, you know, buzz away a little bit and perhaps modern parenthood is relaxing its vice grip on it's precious children. Maybe.
1: Like, I wonder, this this whole article from Hannah Rosen got me thinking about my own childhood. And, and, you know, she talked to a lot of parents who said, oh, yeah, I did some crazy stuff in my childhood. I would never let my kids do that. I was so stupid. I jumped off of things. I went, you know, blah, blah, blah. But then I thought of some of the things I did. And I guess did my parents just assume I was safe just because I was with a friend? I was wandering all over creation basically unsupervised with another seven-year-old. Yeah. You, you know, I was tramping through neighborhoods in weird ways. Oh, and this is another thing that, that, that Rosen talks about as far as letting kids find different routes to places. So my, my best friend and I would walk through my neighborhood, through somebody's backyard, through the woods, out into this other neighborhood to get to that neighborhood's pool. So we found this, like, great little exploration trail. It involved creeks. It involved turtles. It involved birds and other wildlife. And so we got to experience all this, like, feeling of independence when really I'm sure I could make that walk in about 10 minutes as a grown-up. But I think it was it was so important to let us, Allie and me, do that. But, you know, as a grown-up, like, would I let my kids do that? I don't know. And I think that's where the divide is. It's like nostalgically, we look back and we're like, oh, that was so great that I did that. I was so imaginative and so independent. But that was dangerous. I'm not going to let my kids do that.
3: This episode is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly
2: workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs
3: Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text
2: snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year
5: It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Well, Caroline, I now want to read a memoir of your childhood <laughs> adventures, but I also want to hear from other listeners too. I mean, what do you, if you're a parent, how do you let your. Child's imagination roam free? And also, what kind of imaginative adventures did you go on as well?
1: And I want to hear. Like, are we the only people, Krista and I, are we the only people who remember our childhood imaginations and our perception of the world being so vivid, everything being so magical, like going into wardrobes and thinking we're going to be transferred somewhere magical?
4: I wish I had gotten through the other side. Not going (laughs) to lie. (laughs) Let us know, though. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at Podcast and message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now about our podcast, The Body Shaming Epidemic. So I've got one here from Whitney's subject line, nearly punched a six-year-old kid. Well, not really, but I wanted to. She writes, I just got done listening to your fabulous episode on The Body Shaming Epidemic and just had to relate my story regarding my four-year-old daughter. My husband and I both work, and I go to school full-time as well, so our daughter is in daycare during the week. She has a lot of great buddies there, but there is this one mean little six-year-old boy that always gives her grief. Who knows? He probably has a crush on her, but he's still just a little punk in my eyes. One day, I picked my daughter up from daycare, and she was clearly distressed. It took a bit of prodding to discover the source of her sadness, but I eventually found out that this little boy had been calling her fat all day. My daughter has always been a bit bigger and taller than the average kid. Can someone say Michelin, baby? But it's adorable, and most importantly, healthy. Of course, I explained that this was entirely inaccurate and that she was a gorgeous, healthy girl and should not worry about what other people say. Needless to say, this is the closest I've ever come to punching a little kid (laughs) right in his face. It baffles and saddens me that I should have to explain this crazy concept to my four-year-old. Both me and my husband make a point every day to tell her how beautiful she is and hopes to build a solid foundation for her confidence and self-esteem. Hopefully, this will help her when she encounters the many mean little punks throughout her life. So thanks, Whitney. You can't let the
1: jerks win.
4: Nope.
1: Um, okay, so I have a letter here from Heather. She's a new listener. She says, this fat shaming makes me think of my husband and his seven sisters. He was sometimes described as being husky by his mother while many of the girls were fed ice cream shakes to put extra weight on them. There's been a lot of body image attention in the family and is still happening for most of them as adults. There's always a comment about the current status and weight stats of the siblings among their mom and each other. My husband is very weight conscious and has trained himself to live on two meals a day to stay slim since the weekend may involve extra meals with our family or drinking a few beers. He recently commented about the bellies of our boys, ages 8 and 10, and I didn't really put all this in perspective, but knew fat shaming would not be the way to go with our kids. We're all very active. My husband and I do road and trail running races as well as triathlons. The boys play soccer and baseball. I am trying to focus on health and fitness, balanced diet, and minimal screen time. I'm also a pediatrician, so I have to walk a careful line at work when discussing weight with kids. I try to focus on health and lifestyle with them as well. So thank you very much for your letter, Heather, and welcome to the podcast. We're glad to have you.
4: Yeah, and if you want to send us your thoughts on imagination or anything else, at momstuffathowstuffworks.com is our email address. And to find all the links to our social, all of our podcast videos and blogs, please head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
2: Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com.
2: Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com.